welcome back to the show, friends. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you once again uh, by Cathcart Associates. They may indeed be my employers, um, but they're also the best technology recruitment company in the entire world. Um, so please do check them out. I'm really excited about today's guest. We have Brian Hills, um, who's the Deputy CEO and Head of Service Design at the Data Lab. For those of you who don't know what the Data Lab do, Brian goes into it in much more detail and more eloquently than I can possibly do, but he is a pretty big deal in the kind of world of data in Scotland, so um, had a good time kind of picking his brains and uh, seeing how he got to where he is. He's also usually on the other side of the desk for podcasting, so it was quite fun to interview him. Um, so ladies and gents, please welcome to the show, Brian Hills. Thanks for coming on again, Brian. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, no worries. Uh, so anyone that listens to podcasts, we always start an education. Um, every so often, uh, the person we're speaking to maybe hasn't been to uni, but that which we talk about as well. Um, in this case, you did uni up in Aberdeen, right? So you did a MA in computing. Yeah, I did a Master of Arts in computing. So uh, it's a bit of a weird one there. I uh, At school, I, I liked both uh, art, uh, spent hours painting and also programming computers and uh uh, there was an opportunity to join actually in the arts faculty so you could mix your subjects between art uh, subjects and computing subjects so uh, uh, there was a couple of us who did that and um, it's interesting nowadays actually you're seeing that kind of look back there's much more of a focus on uh, interdisciplinary learning uh, and bringing in art subject as well as AI for example uh, which seems to be a, a developing theme but uh, I remember from that actually the first year We'd be in a lecture doing some programming language. It'd be 200, 200 guys in a room and, and five women. And then in the afternoon, I'd go across to do the history of art lecture and there'd be 200 women in a room and five of us guys. So it's <laughs> quite funny just to be pivoted around in a day. But, it's uh, quite a nice mix. Um, is there not quite an obvious link, when, just now that you've said that, but between kind of like some of the skills of like kind of an artist and a any sort of kind of software programmer or, or like someone in the world of computing, like is, is there not quite a good link between them just from a, I don't know just how you would apply things? I think maybe a common thread across both of them is a creative mindset. That's the reason I got into computing in the first place because I wondered how back sitting at my Amstrad with a green screen how people actually created those games and I wanted to learn how to create things and uh, many of the, the people I've worked with uh, on the, the technical computing side are also very creative outside of work they're musicians or they're artists or, or lots of other areas that they're interested in so I, th- I do think a common theme through that is the creative aspect and the, the innovative aspect um, between the arts and, and uh, technical subjects yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you said that there's a kind of resurgence in that, so there is kind of people doing that that kind of hybrid degree again now. Yeah, so I think you're particularly seeing this with a focus on AI. Um, you know, AI, uh, the hype behind it was really focusing on the technical aspects and the algorithms. I think what we're seeing is the pullback to actually th- say that actually People from an arts background have a lot to contribute in the whole debate around AI and how it's used for society and and benefits society or otherwise. So that cross-pollination or interdisciplinary focus, as it's uh, often um, called, is, I think, being developed 
again, it's coming through the university. So in Edinburgh, for example, you've got the Edinburgh Futures Institute that's focusing on uh, that area and that fusion. And I know down in Bath, I think it was, um, they're starting to do courses, an AI course where you have to do some arts modules uh, or humanities modules within the technical learning you're doing as well. Yeah, okay, no, that sounds good. And just before we jump into kind of the the kind of two or three year career, if you like, um, was there a chance of you staying on at university and, and pursuing either kind of arts or computing um, in some sort of kind of PhD or, or, or kind of something like that? I'm afraid I was too mercenary. After four years <laughs> of living like a student, uh, I had an internship at HP uh, after uh, in the summer of the third year. Uh, and then actually getting paid for something that you love doing was an amazing feeling. So um, there was no moving from that um, at the time. My mother often uh, said that she thought I would be a great academic and I'd like to do that. But actually um, to get paid for what you love doing was an amazing thing. And I, I just couldn't look back from there. Yeah, no, it's definitely fair. I mean, it is one of the things we've spoken about with people that have done a PhD, like making ends meet and the kind of money you do get for doing a PhD can actually be quite tough for the for that, for another four years. Whereas like, yeah. I mean, I worked, I worked in Tesco all the way through uni and I couldn't wait to get like a full-time wage as opposed to kind of, like you said, scraping by as a student. <laughs> yeah, and I think to be honest, I was influenced by the 80s because being young in the 80s, I was born in 77. And then when the, the economic challenge of the 80s happened and you've seen how tight things were for a lot of people and ourselves as a family, it kind of seeded in my mind that I didn't want to be in that situation. So the opportunity to actually develop a career um, and take that forward, once I'd done the four years, that, that was enough for me. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, and it looks like kind of you pretty much jumped jump straight from uh, graduation into um, a software engineering role with Agilent Technologies. What was it like kind of going into industry and applying some of that theoretical computer science knowledge into kind of an industry? And um, I know they still are around today, but was that a different company then? Yeah, so it was Hewlett Packard. They had uh, a factory of about 1,500 people in South Queensbury uh, at the time. I did an internship there and then they offered me a few roles to join permanently after university. Um, and it was focused on telecoms. So they were building kit and platforms to monitor telecom infrastructure. Um, and I joined a wee team of 15 people at most at doing custom solutions off the top of that. So analyzing data in real time across international mobile networks. Back in the late 90s, early noughties, you know, uh, mobile phones, international roaming was high value to uh, the operators and they really needed to ensure quality of service so we were doing a lot of real-time uh, system development and alerting and then laterally I then go into data warehousing and analysis and we thought all this real-time data actually if we could store it in a data warehouse we could see longer term trends and that's really what got me into the analysis side from that point but nice. it's really kind of set the pattern for my career in, in that I joined a small team with a Maverick leader uh, and it was great just to be part of starting something up and really going hard on that piece um, and, and and learning a lot on the way. Yeah, no, I bet. And did you learn kind of quite quickly that um, we've had a few people on on the show who've said that the kind of real, the thing that struck them when they left uni was that kind of, you suddenly had like project deadlines, which were much different to when you had like something due at uni, like there was a lot more on the line. Um, and also just like, you learned so much more in the first few months than you probably thought you might. Like you kind of come in from uni with all this knowledge, but then when you're actually in the kind of role and, uh, and working with, like you said, a really good leader and a team, it just feels different. Did, did you feel that as well? 
Yeah, I mean, a big proportion of what I maybe learned at university, let's say 50%, you know, I wouldn't apply in that role. Um, taking the, some of the skills, the software engineering skills that I'd learned and then applying that into into industry and, and learning how to work in that environment. I think the, the working for the leaders you want to work for is an, an important thing. Um, for me, at the time, the, the leaders in that organisation were really focused on autonomy and empowerment. So it didn't matter if you're a graduate, you got to meet the customers in the first three months. And I remember after two years, because I'd been working on a certain product, um, they said to me, our European conference with 250 customers and execs, you should be the person up there standing talking about this product, not me, because you're working on it. And then mentoring us through how you do a presentation in front of all those people and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I think... um, for graduates, certainly I advise them, you know, you, you need to be also ask questions of who you're going to work for because they need to be the right fit for you and what you want to do. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. And it looks like after a, kind of a few years there, um, you kind of move back into the world of academia, right? So um, I think uh, you're working as an application consultant at University of Edinburgh. So uh, what was that kind of role uh, entailing, I suppose? Yeah, so that was a wee bit of a jump for me, um, going from industry back the way. But the, the premise behind that project was they were looking to help scientists productionize um, their science on big data platforms. So it was really interesting to me in terms of um, how you do mass experiments on a large scale. So back in the day, they were talking about grid data infrastructures. This was before cloud and how you distribute science experiments. So we were working with people in healthcare, but also um, leading um, astronomers who have massive data sets. And for me, it's a, it's a challenge on how you productionize that and use your, your production software engineering skills to do that. So that, that was um, interesting. But to be honest, after two years, I kind of felt it was a bit too academic and, and wanted to get back into back into industry. Yeah, isn't uh, obviously you wouldn't regret it, but do, do, do you, are you glad you did it? Are you glad you went back to academia to kind of test out that side of the kind of world of work as well? So you, you've got, you've got a really nice like overall view of working in, I suppose, every kind of most different areas. Yeah, and I was, I was aware of a lot of the challenges from that, and, and actually um, how you get things uh, pushed through the, the kind of politics of academia as well. So I learned quite a lot on that side. Um, uh, that perspective and I learned, learned a lot of new technical skills that I didn't have from the first four years in industry as well so all of the the, the Java stuff and the, the grid stuff was really interesting and working with astronomers so a whole new domain set for applying analytics to was really interesting and trying to comprehend what they were doing running distributed machine learning algorithms across massive data sets was, was really interesting but after those yeah. two years I really just wanted to get back into the industry and, and, and get uh, I guess harness the drive you get from having business challenges yeah no that makes sense and, and then uh, you ended up spending a good few years at um, uh, Sumerian who uh, are um, a pretty interesting Edinburgh based analytics company I think you ended up wearing quite a few hats with them but uh, but you ended up as their head of analytics was the, when you first joined was the team quite small and kind of quite different to to what it was when you left because um, I think I remember kind of roughly that they went through a bit of a growth spurt kind of a, a couple of years after you joined is that right yeah they, they did but we never really scaled to the the ambition of what we wanted to do because the underlying market was changing um, so much and the customers we had I guess the big challenge was when things started to take off for us, the financial crash happened and a lot of our customers were big banks. 
uh, or investment mm. banks and they just had to cut costs and at that point we actually went through laid people off before we before we grew again but an interesting part for me really as you mentioned was moving from technical focus and I spent a few years here doing the analytics and delivering them to, to customers to then the more managerial aspects and uh, on my part it probably wasn't by design to be honest and a lot of people and data that I speak to that happens to a lot of us and engineering that is maybe not a conscious career decision but we kind of fall into it and and once you make that break it's uh, an interesting because it's a new set of skills that you need to learn it's an interesting pathway to uh, to develop and, and there's all, always the niggling thought in the back of your head uh, you're not a technical expert anymore and could you ever go back to that and did you make the right decision and all that kind of stuff um but really that was the, the kind of the, the point at which i started to focus more on management and leadership yeah and one of the things that's came up again a few times in the past is when you do get to that kind of like you said kind of accidental managerial role the first thing you realize is that you actually really miss like the the hands-on element of it it's not that you don't enjoy the managerial side you just don't have a chance to do the hands-on stuff anymore was that the case kind of for you when you were there and even in in your next role as well yeah i think well i think i would speak for many people in that when they move to something like that it, there tends to be a lot of overlap so you're leading a team but actually you're still doing a lot of technical work as well and indeed i see a lot of job specs for data leaders uh, who say you also need to have technical expertise in X, Y, and Z because you get your hands dirty. That's a challenging piece to tread both of those lines, um, especially when you're operating at scale. So I think it was kind of, to be honest, it was mixed. as a mix of technical and managerial to begin with. And then over time, it became much more delivery and managerial focused. In your own time, did you still like to keep kind of like, not necessarily like going home and uh, and getting the getting the machine out and, uh, and getting to work on stuff, but did you still like kind of keeping abreast of all the kind of advancements in data and the technology? So, not that you could necessarily jump in if somebody was off ill or anything like that, but just so you could talk to your team at a kind of like I can't think of a better word than like a credible level. Yeah, I think you have to keep your kind of technical knowledge up, but you might not be creating, I don't know, make files and compiling code or doing the actual analysis, but you have to keep abreast of the underlying movements and what's happening with the technology to be able to to engage them. But also I think at that level also is, is kind of pulling people back to thinking about the core problems they're trying to solve and the approach they're trying to solve. And, you you know, they're the technical experts, so they can apply their toolkit to it, but actually helping them with the approach to, to solving that and ultimately delivering to what the customer requirement is. Yeah. And does that help then? So you said you'd obviously, um, back when you were at HP, the, the presentation on the product that you were kind of owning at the time, and then you had to deal with kind of a whole new set of customers at the uni dealing with astronomers, for example. Um, and then at Sumerian, you had like financial services clients, like you said. Um, did that really help you with the part that I think a lot of people still are getting wrong, but the kind of like business stakeholder management, like understanding customer problems? Like You've almost just done that by default at the companies you've worked at. Yeah, yes. And I think the, the companies I've worked at, we've been really close to the customers. And so that's, that's the key starting point, right? And the big projects that we worked in, FS and Sumerian, were real learning journeys for me. Um, some of the, the key products we were creating were enabling IT departments and banks to understand the performance of their services. So like their mortgage service, they run across all branches. So um 
how was that running in their mainframe, across their web farm, uh, in their branches and other parts of that virtual infrastructure? And we pull it all together in a virtual service line. You could monitor the performance and capacity um, of that service. But to enable that to happen, you had to work across all the different tiers of tech, engage the data owners for the mainframe, for the web farm, for, for all the monitoring kits, persuade them that they want to give you data as an external company <laughs> um, and uh, work with a service owner who was kind of the sponsor of it. So that, that was really a, a good learning journey in terms of understanding customers, negotiating with them, giving them the benefits of the service that we were going to provide, etc., and bringing them on board, which in that environment uh, certainly learned a lot. Yeah, no, I bet. And then the kind of last stop before talking about what you're doing now, kind of late 2012, uh, you ended up joining Skyscanner as their head of BI. I assume that the Skyscanner of 2012 was quite different to the company that uh, we all kind of know it as now. What was it like when you kind of joined there in terms of kind of, was there still that real startup feel to it? And was it quite small? Uh it was quite small where it was compared to just now, but it was, uh, I think I joined around about 170 uh, and they just yeah. moved to their new office in Quarter Mile when I had joined. Um, oh, and nice. then when I left a couple of years later, um, I think it was 170 in one office at that point. And then when I left, uh, there was over 700 people uh, two years later uh, with offices in Miami and Singapore and Glasgow and Gary, I think. Uh, mm. So the growth cycle there was was amazing, uh, and it was a it was a, a high speed growth uh, piece. Was that um, was that one of the things that attracted you when you spoke to them at interview? Like the the fact that there was the chance to scale it from like yeah, just shy of two hundred to closer to a thousand. Like, did it feel like a kind of something you wanted to get involved in because of that, or, or was the kind of the, the bi and data challenges was that kind of what drew you to it i think for me it was how do you how do you grow and function within an organization that's moving at such a fast pace how do you serve the business and also we were looking at external data products as well how could we leverage that data to create new products to serve customers so i think it was really the attraction for me was setting up a function and scaling it to to help the business um which you know in sumerian was a small scale and we weren't really growing at that point and sky scan offered much more of an opportunity um to do that and really um learn lots of new skills and, and stretch myself uh that in a way i hadn't been stretched before yeah i feel like from a technology point of view as well sky scanner is one of these places that you get exposed to potentially a lot more than you would if you were say working at like a bank or something like that like you're able to pick up some new things like you're able to suggest a kind of new way of doing things or even just like some of your own kind of r&d stuff can end up being implemented into the wider kind of skyscanner world i don't know if that is was the case when you were there but it certainly seems like an open tech environment yeah well it was broken out into that environment at the beginning and what we've been doing i think we were focused on a, a key set of technologies and, and towards the end of my time there organizationally we transitioned to more of the spotify model of squads and tribes and chapters etc and then those uh, squads had autonomy for the types of tools that they wanted to use to to deliver on what they were working on so at that point, there was a lot of autonomy in trying lots of, of different pieces. So at the time, they didn't really buy any massive big 
for example, data platforms to, to serve things on. Uh, it was all created in-house on, on standard things like uh, Microsoft and other things. And since that, obviously, it's moved to the cloud. Um, but I, I remember when we first started off there, so for Skyscanner, the peak used to be in January. So everybody comes back and they're searching for holidays. And I think it was the first <laughs> year we uh, uh, we were still in a data center and we were trying to predict the volume of searches and activities on the site um, to what the peak would be. And the, the numbers were just going through the roof. And, and so the IT guys were literally buying tin to put in the data center every day. And we were trying to predict uh, what the usage would be. It was crazy. And of course, all of that's in, in the cloud. You know, a couple of years later, that moved into the cloud. But, you know, back in those early days, it was um, it was really interesting to see the, the challenges we hit quite quickly and how we overcame them. Yeah, it must have been like that rough time when you were there, like kind of like 2012 to probably get up to when it was, was bought over even. But like the the challenges of just trying to get the scale right, because it did just go like, they obviously added new products and then it just became like kind of go-to search engine for flights. So like, like you said, when it got those peaks and everything, like trying to get the tech right must have been a real challenge. Yeah, and that's where things like cloud come in, right? But it's a lot more elastic in terms of, of provisioning. Um, but then on the flip side of that, as I think most people appreciate in the cloud, is, is how you get your pricing strategy right on, on the cloud piece. And you're not paying way more um, than you should. And how you do your capacity management in that environment, which a lot of companies, if they're not on the ball for that, get large bills in. So, yeah, so I think you know that, that type of development tech really helped going forward. Yeah. Um, no, it sounds good, and it? and it sounds like it was a, a kind of really interesting time to be there. Um, and like you said, you, you kind of spent a couple of years, and then you moved on um, to uh, the data lab. So uh, it was kind of recently in the press that your um, position is now deputy CEO and head of service design. But when you first joined, what was the kind of attraction, and what was the role kind of when you first moved over? Yeah, so the pattern i guess in my career looking back is i've I'm always been interested in getting involved in new things and helping start up new things it might not be startup businesses per se but new initiatives whether it's in large corporates or public sector or, or the skyscanner piece we talked about and so the opportunity to actually create an organization that was missioned with leveraging data to help the Scottish economy and the citizens and society across Scotland using data uh, was really interesting to me. So how do you give back to your own country and how do you scale that impact across your own country? Um, and I went to a, a local conference and um, Dave, who was the interim CEO at the time, stood up and said, right, we've got funding for this. Here's what we need to do. I haven't done anything yet. And the last slide is a traditional, by the way, we're recruiting. So uh, <laughs> I dropped him an email over Christmas and we met up for a quick coffee. And they said, do you want to come and help um, set it up? So uh, I said, yes. And that, that was it. Um, and uh, essentially a blank slate. There was a business plan that had been signed off with the funding. Um, but in terms of making that real, it was a, a blank slate, um, which uh, was really great to be involved at the start of that. Yeah, so you've literally came in on the kind of ground floor of the data lab, then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I think there was uh, two or three of the team there in place who just joined that quarter, and then I, I joined as I think it was about number four at the time. Um, nice. And uh, the first thing that crossed my desk was we have funding to start a master's program, 
and, and scholarships for masters in data and data science across Scotland. With three universities, can you get that started? Um, never done anything like that before, so uh, that, that kind of set the tone uh, for the, the last five years, really. <laughs> it's been great. Yeah, I was going to say, there must be, uh, you must have worn a lot of different hats, especially in the early days, which is like, We've got a business plan, but now we need to kind of execute it. Um, just going back quickly, you did mention it, but um, just in case anyone doesn't know what the data lab is all about. So you mentioned they're kind of using data for kind of the benefit of Scotland, essentially. Um, that's still pretty much the aim, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, data lab is part of an innovation centre network. So the, the Scottish government and their agencies funded um, an innovation centre network to pull together um, academia, public sector and industry to collaborate closer around specific uh, domain areas. Um, so there's eight innovation centres um, ranging from digital health to oil and gas to aquaculture and, and, and others. Uh, and so we're one of the eight. And, and specifically, our mission is how do we help Scotland maximise value from data and, and ambitiously in that lead the world to a data powered future. So that, that's the mission that we're really uh, going after and what we're doing. Yeah, um, and it seems like, I mean, especially from the outside looking in, there's there's so many things that you guys are involved in, which must be great fun, but also, I imagine, making your life very busy. Yeah, so we, we have got a team of 32 uh, across the country, so Edinburgh, uh, Glasgow, Aberdeen, Inverness, um, all working from home at the moment, obviously, and uh, we're funded by a range of different bodies from Scottish Founding Council, Scottish Enterprise, Helens and Islands Enterprise and, and the Scottish Government. And at the point we are just now, we're in our second phase. So we're one year into the next five years. Uh, there's 32 of us. So what I'm looking at now is how do we scale our impact across the country? Because being 32 people, you get to constraints quite quickly in what you can deliver. As you say, we've delivered loads of great stuff, uh, but we need to be smarter in how we scale that. So we're working quite closely with the board to to look at the way that we, we do that across the country at the moment. You're in that second phase. So how do you kind of optimise 32 people to try and do the things that you're doing? Like, is there projects that you're kind of honing in on and, and they will be delivered first and then kind of other things will fall on the back of that? It's really about going back to strategy and understanding what we want to achieve and, and how, we're, how we're going to do it. So when the Data Lab started, we were focused on a three-pillar strategy. So supporting organisations to innovate with data across the country, um, so that was funding academic collaborations or doing projects with the small data team that we have here, um, some transformational projects and cancer and, uh, innovation and the um, data collaborative for children with UNICEF. So catalyzing that innovation across the country and also helping organisations access funding from different agencies in Scotland, the UK and, and Europe. So that, that was one key focus area. The second was around developing the skills pipeline in Scotland to help businesses in the public sector from professional uh, leadership education to CPD and masters and helping advise schools or the curriculum for schools and data. Um, and thirdly, building a strong community for that across the country and internationally. Um, and because we believe in, as I guess you guys know, you know, everything comes off the back of creating a strong community um, for what we want to achieve. And that, that was really the three focus areas that were set up on. And now we're looking at a model of evolving that to understanding in, in a wider system context, 
where organisations are in their data journey in Scotland, um, where they want to be, and and what needs to happen to help them be successful in that journey. And that really maps into a range of services that, that we provide, but also organisations that we're connected to provide or the wider ecosystem. So it doesn't need to be purely data labs. So, so we're moving much more into a model of understanding that data journey and, and how to be successful in it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and like you said, you have delivered so many things already. I mean, is there a particular standout project or or, or like event or something like that that you guys have been a part of that, that you've been kind of really proud of? That's a really difficult one because <laughs> there's lots of really good stuff. There's lots of really good stuff. I might just touch on a, a couple of examples if it's okay. Um, yeah, go for it. Well, actually, I'll give you a few examples. So in the academic collaborations where we, we fund universities to work with business, we've had collaborations with companies called Ecometrica looking at mapping the water footprint of crops. So Agritech meets climate change. A project called FitSense, which was looking to use data to predict and prevent dangerous falls for elderly in uh, monitored homes. So that was a groundbreaking project up in the Highlands where I come from. We're working with the conversational AI group at Harriet Walt University and partnering with a company called Emotech, uh, looking at uh, Ollie the Robot and conversational AI. Um, and oh, nice. Also one with an oil and gas with DNV. So how do we digitise uh, their drones and schematics for the last 30 years in the oil industry. Um, they're working with RGU on that. Uh, and the case study we've got gives an example of a three-hour process down to five minutes by using machine learning uh, to do that in vision Jeez. recognition. So there's lots of great academic collaborations. There's stuff with the third sector that our data scientists have been working on. So um, a charity called Circle who's working with some of the most challenged families in Edinburgh and the region really... Uh, uh, wanted to understand if they could use data to understand their service and the impact of their service and, and working with one of our data scientists, they were able to do that for the very first time and, and demonstrate to their funders and their board the impact of the work they were doing uh, and really create the case studies, but also use that as justification for um, increased funding. So there are a few examples. And then there's some bigger ones as well, more on the transformational side um, that we've been asked to do specifically. So Cancer Innovation Challenge was a specific project uh, funded for, by the Scottish Government. And, and how can we bring technology companies together with healthcare and clinicians to use data to improve outcomes? So there's some great outcomes from that. Um, uh, a company called My Clinical Outcomes was awarded some funding and they've developed a platform for the collection of oncology um, patient-related outcomes. So in between that time where you might go in for treatment with clinicians uh, and you're at home, uh, the ability to let your clinician know how you're feeling uh, or any side effects, etc. And then the clinician can, without having to meet you, tune when the next appointment should be or what the treatment should be, etc. is really revolutionary, especially at the time right now we're in COVID where um, cancer treatment is, is being limited. So they piloted that with one of the boards here, NHS Ayrshire and Arran. They've had five more projects now and they're rolling it out. Uh, they're planning to roll it out nationally across Scotland. So it's fantastic. That's amazing. Um, and then really deep data science in that project as well with a group called Canon Medical Research, who have a research office in, in uh, Edinburgh. Yeah. And, and they were funded to apply deep learning to understand 
patient response to treatment for a, a cancer called MPM, which is a, an asbestos-related cancer and has high incidence in the UK. And so it's difficult for radiologists to understand those images over time. Uh, and again, this was designed, the algorithm's designed to help the radiologist really understand the treatment and the impact there. So Cancer Innovation Challenge was a, an example of a big transformational one uh, and one that's recently been launched in partnership with Scottish Government uh, Data-Driven Innovation Programme at University of Edinburgh. And UNICEF is the data collaboration for children with UNICEF. So can we use Scotland as a test bed for uh, using data innovation to help children in the country and then partner with UNICEF to scale that globally? Um, so uh, a couple of things they're looking at their initial projects are childhood obesity, uh, which is a challenge in Scotland and the UK and then wider. Um, yeah. Improving global population estimates with satellite imagery um, and better understanding of drivers of childhood poverty. Uh, which is a challenge in Scotland and the UK, to be honest, but obviously wider as well. Uh, and they've just launched um, as a, a mechanism for this thing called impact collaborations and bringing people together to work on these challenges. And specifically one at the moment, which has been looked at in the context of where we are, is what's the best approach to using data to tackle the impacts or the socioeconomic impacts of, of COVID-19 on children? So a lot of good stuff being worked on by that group. So that's an example of lots of different projects. There's lots of stuff going on, but it just illustrates how wide the opportunity for using data uh, on an economic and a societal side is for for ourselves as a country um, and wider. Yes, it's pretty amazing some of the things you said, and also just the difference, like you said, there's so many different applications. And I hadn't really thought about it before the show, but it's one of the big positives from the data lab being not it's not forced obviously but almost that ability to bring academia industry and like you guys together because i felt like that was always maybe there was always maybe like a gap that there were so many amazing things going on in academia there were so many interesting things going on in kind of industry when it came to data but there wasn't and maybe there still isn't enough collaboration between the two yeah i think we view Data Lab as, as a nexus for data innovation across the country. Um, and that, that doesn't mean that we need to own everything and we need to do everything. If we're providing a simple connection between two people who can collaborate, and that's all we do via email, some great stuff even happened just by that. So that, that, that piece about growing a community and growing those connections, uh, and there's a lot of execution, obviously, we're involved in that demonstrated, but pulling all that together really is our job. And there's... There's a rich developing ecosystem in tech across the country um, from the likes of Scotland is who um, manage a lot of the cluster work and the industry body for tech in Scotland. So I mentioned the data-driven innovation program at the University of Edinburgh, the Alliance of the Computer Science uh, Departments in, in Scotland, SIXA, the Scottish Tech Army that's been started up uh, in response to the yeah. COVID-19 piece. You know, there's the 15 universities we work with. There's all the college sector as well. So there, there's a rich ecosystem. And really, for us, it's how do we help bring some of that together to deliver impact for the country and enable that to, to, to happen? Yeah, no, it's pretty amazing. The tech army stuff as well, just kind of, it just show you that kind of tech community in Scotland. Um, one of the questions I actually skipped over, has there been a huge impact um, 
on some of the work you're doing with COVID or have you managed to kind of like keep things running from home and, and have the team kind of doing as much as they can as normal? Uh, yeah, so I think everybody everybody's had to evolve rapidly in the situation. Um, I think, well, a good place to start in this is probably a, a, a year prior to this, we've done a lot of work to develop our values as an organisation. We'd had a go at it initially and hadn't quite got there and then, we, we had another go and we were able to develop a strong value set across the organization and we're rooted in the values of innovate, support, grow and respect and, and they're embedded across everything we do and, and externally as well. You'll see it across the website and actually that year spent doing that and embedding it in the organization really put us in a strong position for handling all the pivots that we've had to make and all the, all the support that we've, we've had to give and using that framework really to think primarily when this hit supporting our people as that's the number one priority and and even though at the beginning i thought well we could cluster people into those who have families those who live alone etc what i quickly understood from the conversations was everybody has specific uh, circumstances and even i've got a family other people have got families in our organization but they're uh, different uh, life circumstances etc and, and no two people were the same so really thinking on an individual level and making sure everybody's okay that uh, was the, the first piece but as that hit we were running data fest which is another big thing we do so it's our annual yeah. festival of data innovation uh, we're anticipating about four and a half thousand people participating across 80 events in scotland we were into week one, which is our fringe, which is basically the network of organisations in Scotland who want to put on a data event. We, that started to run, but the Thursday of that week, Wednesday, Thursday, we were thinking, is it a responsible thing to run our big conferences and colliders the next week and our executive dinners and stuff? Uh, and yeah. then we took the difficult decision that it wasn't the right thing to do. Um, and that was before you know all the government stuff came out and said you shouldn't do it. Um, and then actually so on the Wednesday or Thursday we cancelled all that and did all the contact and on the Friday we decided all to work from home again before it was announced and you know a difficult decision but when you look back on it it's just the right thing to do so yeah. that's how it all started for us <laughs> we were in our biggest thing of the year and we just had to stop and then you know we had to pivot a lot of things we have a, an innovation week for our master's cohort so we fund 155 master's students across 11 universities every year in Scotland uh, and connect them into industry for placements and, and then on to jobs. Um, and we bring them together to do a design thinking week. Um, so it's really taking them out of the, uh, the focus of the technical toolbox they're learning at master's level and putting them much more oriented towards understanding customer problems and how you approach that in a design thinking way. And we partnered with the Design Thinking Academy in London to do it. We'd got a hotel, it was open and planning, and then obviously we couldn't do that. So we pivoted that entire week uh, with probably 160 people online, and that was really useful. It was focused on the circular economy and, and working with Glasgow City Chamber. And then, you know, out of this, we're seeing lots of opportunities for collaboration across the ecosystem in driving forward on digital, Scottish digital initiatives uh, in government and, and elsewhere. So we're involved in a lot of that stuff. And now we're seeing a lot of funding opportunities as well for things we've worked on in the past are funded or things in the future in the new COVID world. How do we evolve our innovation in that world to address new challenges that we're facing? And I mentioned one for the, the data collaborative for children, focusing on that socioeconomic impact of COVID. Yeah. 
uh, and there's there's a lot more. So yeah, there's you know there was significant impact to what we've done, but I think that actually grounded in the work that we've done around our values uh, and and grounded in focusing on every individual member of the team and and helping as much as we can that, that really set the platform for enabling us to do that successfully. Unlike most people, we've onboarded new starts as well <laughs> and done interviews and then onboarded new starts and just amazing feedback from the new starts saying that actually. The process we've went through here to onboard in the data lab remotely has been better than any onboarding I've had in person on a company. Uh, and there's a blog yeah, about that. Yeah, people are probably um, people are probably trying. Well, the people who are doing it right are probably trying so much harder to onboard the remote people than maybe when you get a little bit complacent and you've hired yeah. a few people and you just kind of get them in, give them the machine, welcome them to the team, have a coffee or whatever, and then you kind of just start cracking on. Whereas, like when it's remote, that could be much more touch points, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've definitely, definitely found that. And I think actually a positive from all of this is we probably, we've probably got a d- deeper insight into each other at a personal level than we probably did working in an office. You know, yeah. when the kids pop into your conference call and we learn about the kids or the animals and all that kind of stuff, or just what you're going through in your personal circumstances with all of this, I think actually, for our perspective, it's helped to bind us closer together. Yeah, no, I think there's a few companies in that boat as well, um, which has been, like you said, one of the kind of one of the positives. Um, you mentioned, I think you maybe touched on it, um, and I think I'm right in saying, but the data lab have obviously got quite a big part to play um, in the AI strategy for Scotland as well, right? The Scottish government have asked us to administer that process of uh, enabling it to happen, um, and the Scottish government will take the the evidence and the outputs from that process to then write the strategy. So. Um, Pre-COVID, the timeline for that was to to work on it and have it ready for the programme for government, the Scottish Government in September, and we've had to evolve that timeline. So it's it's into Q1 next year, I think, um, to do that. So, you know, that, that's been a case of bringing together experts from across the country um, and internationally. Um, and also, I think an important thing is is the the engagement piece across society on it as well. So we're not just optimizing to the technical aspects and the experts, but we're actually getting the input of citizens right across the country uh, on this. So we're running it in a, in a very open and transparent way to to try and enable that to happen. So we've had um, an open consultation for anybody to contribute to personally or on behalf of an organisation. Uh, we've been engaging with citizens across the country and running uh, small uh, working groups to get feedback from cross-demographic selection of society. We've been running things across the country uh, and then we've got some formal working groups uh, with people in them looking at specific aspects from ethics through to infrastructure and, and many other areas. So, yeah, that, that process is in, in flow right now. And I think for us, it's really important to have a strategy around this from a government level um, going forward. Is, is there anyone else doing anything remotely similar, like in terms of other countries do, do, that we that we know of? Um, I think uh, most countries have or are working on a data strategy uh, or an AI strategy for the country. Um, 
uh, I think is important for us, though it's it's not grounded in you want to be the best in terms of, you know, you're not going to compete with China or the US in terms of money invested in this area, but actually having yeah. it focused on how we use AI to benefit society and our economy, I think is a, a strong grounding for Scotland and having that as a focus. Uh, and then maybe looking at some specifics that make our environment unique and where we can be leaders. So yeah. I noticed, I don't, don't know if you saw overnight, but there's an article published in The Guardian that New Zealand are claiming uh, world first and setting a standard for government use of AI, which is really interesting. Oh, no, no. So um, a small country, but um, leading on a particular aspect, um, you know, uh, so they have created a charter on algorithms for traffic light control to police decision making. And they want to use that to develop public trust. So I think they've got 19 government agencies signed up to it initially, and and they're pledging to be transparent about how decision is making is made by algorithms, plain English explanations, showing how data is processed, all that kind of stuff, uh, and identifying managing biases and algorithms. So um, so other countries are are doing uh, this, and actually. As part of the work, we have been looking at other AI strategies, and there are lots, lots of them out there. So, you know, leveraging what feels right for us, but really having it grounded in how do we uh, enable a country to benefit as a whole from this? Yeah, I think um, I've not read the New Zealand thing. I'll go and do that after this, but the plain English part of it and getting it away, because there's still too many people, I think, that read the paper about. AI taking jobs, and you actually mentioned a really interesting part earlier where th- some of the work you're doing from the kind of cancer screening point of view, it was to enable the kind of doctors to, to make better decisions. It's not replacing them. So, like, it's just those little slight tweaks in language, and and if you can do it in a kind of plain English type way, and the way you guys have been really open about the AI strategy for Scotland and having people, you can, I mean, I've looked at the questionnaires and stuff, like, it's all straightforward stuff. So, like, there's, there's nothing confusing, which I think will really help make it a success yeah absolutely i mean that's that's key to it i think what we've seen in the last couple of years is when things have gone wrong in data and ai it's really it's kind of um been in a operating in a darkened black box room and then it's exposed by a, a journalist or, or some failure and then people really start to think what is going on here you know i think the openness and transparency really is is key yeah. Um, and just moving back to kind of more general rather than the data lab for a second, but you've um, kind of worked for a few different companies, all really interesting and in, uh, different times of their kind of journey. And I imagine you've been quite heavily involved kind of building some teams during that as well. And like you just said at the data lab, you're, you're hiring just now or have on more people recently. Do you find anything or when you're speaking to industry partners, is there any kind of tips that, that you give them when it comes to building like really, really high performing data teams? So we actually we did a round table on this last year and then published it as a as an open paper for organi- organizations to use. We brought a bunch of data leaders together from organizations who've built teams to, to kind of get that input and it, it's all open and accessible. I think building highly performant teams is a is a an art and a science. Um <laughs> but uh it's the it's the combination and the different skills that you're pulling together. I think one of the challenges I realize in building teams is you can often optimize and hire to your own particular bias. So wouldn't it be great if I had another 10 
people with the character of myself and my team? Well, actually, reality of that is no. So, you know, how do we build diverse teams uh, from different backgrounds uh, that bring different thinking to the team and we're not just cookie cutting the, the, the approaches that we have so people who've worked in business or academia or public sector people with different tech skill sets uh, from different countries etc and i think that diversity aspect is is absolutely key to it uh, to building yeah. a successful performing team but in general in terms of recruiting uh, and, um, you know, the graduates that we work with are fa- facing a really challenging time just now. So, you know, been giving them advice. I'm mentoring uh, one at the moment as well. And, you know, what, what I would look for is somebody who is really passionate about the role that you're advertising. So one of the first things that we would ask is why are you applying for this job and why the data lab? Um, and if you haven't done your homework, then that's a signal that actually you're not really that interested so uh, I think people that are passionate in joining your organisation but also can demonstrate the ability to learn because inevitably a, a job spec is a is a wish list and you want to have people who can meet some of those, those objectives but can demonstrate how they can learn the others. Um, and uh, that ability to learn and, um, uh, and learn from failing as well, I think is key in building those teams. Yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, it's something we struggled with a little bit. When when I joined here, there was like six of us. Um, and then we grew to like 20, then 30, then a little bit more than that across different offices. Like it was, you, it is easy to fall into the trap of like hiring people quite similar to you because you kind of, we do a relatively informal interview process. So like you get on with them quite well and you can kind of mold them to, to what you're doing. But it is a, it's a slippery slope if that's all you ever have. Um, and I think that's the same in, same in technology. And also, uh, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I spoke to um, a company recently down south and they wanted someone who comes from the exact industry background as them to be in a very senior role for them. And, and I've been trying quite hard to say that you actually don't want to focus on the industry as much. You want to focus on like the problems that the person has solved. And maybe if they've come from FS, for example, or retail, maybe the way they would solve your problem in this kind of more niche industry is, is better. So uh, it's, it's hard to explain that sometimes to people, but uh, I'm sure you guys have similar conversations as well. Yeah, and I, I remember when I joined the Data Lab, actually, somebody challenged me to work in, I think it was Business Development Academy, and I said, you know, why do you want to join this after Skyscar? You know, what, what's of interest of this? I mean, sure, this is not interesting, but the opportunity to bring that experience uh, that I've learned over those years with those companies and the things that I didn't do right, but then take those lessons to actually start in something brand new that's going to have an impact for the country is a, is a huge motivator. And I think, uh, reflect on the data lab, probably our success to date is through that diversity of experience and opinion. There's a bunch of us came from industry into it, equally as bunch from public sector and the academics we work with as well. If it all been industry, I don't think it would have worked. If it all been academic, I don't think it would have worked. So bringing those different viewpoints together, um, I think is, 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 really, um, is really critical. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. And I was just going to finish on, uh, I think I was going to say how does the rest of kind of 2020 look, but given that we're pretty much, we're well over halfway through, um, what is kind of, I suppose, COVID dependent? What is um, kind of the end of 2020, but more importantly, kind of 2021 look? I mean, is the data fest going to be back 
hopefully as normal and and is everything going to um kind of keep progressing yeah so i think we, we're evolving our services and that's what i'm involved in just now we're evolving our services going forward uh, in terms of what we think is required to, to scale our impact and obviously taking the current situation uh, uh, into account as well and um, we just kicked off the conversations for DFS next year and uh, normally we run it in every march uh, we need to be practical about thinking about timelines on, on this stuff at the moment. So just kick that consideration off. Um, I um, I think that there's new modes and opportunities for these types of conferences or engagement with your community that are coming to the fore just now. You know, yeah. really thinking about what's the challenges our communities face at the moment and how do we provide events or webinar series or expertise to help them navigate that. I think we should start our thinking from that level of topic rather than just saying let's do what we've done before and let's mould it to the current situation. Like we take a step back and say how do we help our community right now and um, what's best for them, what's their challenges and, and anchor the, the thinking going forward in, in, with that lens. Um, but yeah. certainly, you know, I think we're seeing an uptake in the opportunity for data innovation and AI innovation across the country uh, and a lot of the challenges coming out of this. It's a great example of how data can be used to help, but also in circumstances where data does not help and it is a challenge. So I think we've never had such a great opportunity to uh, evangelise and engage the citizen and public in these areas. Uh, and I think it's our responsibility as people working in this area to really go out and engage with the company, uh, the, the public, take the difficult questions, use that feedback, but also to promote some of the great stuff that's starting to happen as well. Yeah, no, I think you're bang on. Uh, and it'll be exciting to see kind of how some of you guys' services evolve and, uh, and what things look like as well. Uh, well. Just to finish then, where is the best place for people to kind of keep up with what the Data Lab are doing? Um, I know you guys are pretty active on social media. Uh, what, what do you think is the best way of people keeping in touch with you guys? Yeah, so uh, data lab, the datalab.com is the website, and then we've got a bunch of stuff on social media. Um, data Lab Scotland uh, is the Twitter handle, and uh, we're very active on Twitter. Actually, that's helped with quite a few collaborations. So there's a positive side to that piece uh, as well, and we're on LinkedIn as well. There's a mailing list hanging off the, the website as well. So there's lots of different opportunities to, to connect with us and we absolutely welcome um, discussion and connection with others. Oh, yeah, so you um, have your own podcast as well with the Data Lab, right? So there's people that you've interviewed and, uh, and kind of themes and topics you've looked at. Is it still ongoing just now and, and can people still find the old ones? Yeah, so podcasts are uh, on our website but also on the usual Spotify, uh, Apple, etc. And we've got yeah, a host of topics. We started doing it specifically with Scottish data scientists um, then we evolved it because we thought, well, when we're running DataFest with world-class speakers, we do podcasts with them. Yeah. So the likes of Kirkborn and many others on there, Stephanie Hare, who's really focused on the ethics and biometrics, etc. Oh, yeah. uh, Christopher Wiley from the, all the Cambridge Analytics stuff, uh, Analytica stuff, and then also focusing on stuff that we've done. So there's there's a series most recently on Cancer Innovation Challenge, speaking to those companies in depth that I, that I mentioned earlier. So there's a, a wide variety there, and I think that which helps showcase just the the, the wide breadth of, of data innovation across both Scotland but internationally as well. 
Nice. Um, when I stick this up, I'll make sure I link it to Data Lab social stuff. But I'll also put a link in for the, some of those podcasts because they're really interesting. I'm sure people will be keen to check them out. Well, thanks very much for joining. I appreciate you're, uh, you're very busy. Uh, so I really appreciate the time. And it'll be cool to see what you guys are doing. And hopefully um, the DataFest is one that we keep saying we're going to get involved with earlier because we always um, miss out in, uh, until later in the year. So I'm going to try and be organized this year. So um, we'll see where that goes as well. Great. Thanks, Liam. Thanks for the opportunity. And um great thank you that was a fun one Brian was very easy to talk to he's had a really interesting career and obviously what they're doing at the data lab for the Scottish economy and, uh, and the kind of impact data can have on Scotland is uh, is pretty amazing so please do check them out and um, check out his podcast um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did we'll be back very soon and thanks again to Cathcart Associates um, for sponsoring and making the whole show possible bye for now